The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Good morning and pretty welcome to the program. This is Squawkbox. The Dow drops below the 30,000 mark for the first time since January of 2021, wiping out yesterday's rally after the Fed made its biggest rate hike in nearly three decades. President Biden insists a U.S. recession is not inevitable, but admits the economic pressure is weighing heavily on the mood of the nation as a string of data points to a slowdown in activity. The German finance minister Christian Lindner tells, uh, well, talks down fears of economic fragmentation after bond yields across Europe surge. Eurozone, it is stable. The uh, monetary union uh, has a robust uh, character. Uh, we have institutions and um, we are considering measures to uh, fight uh, inflation, fostering uh, growth. And the leaders of France, Germany and Italy show their support for Ukraine, vowing to back Kiev's candidacy to eventually, that's the key word though, eventually join the European Union. Ukraine belongs to the European family. Germany is in favour of a positive decision, in favour of Ukraine. This also applies to the Republic of Moldova. I have many theories. Good morning to you. And Jeff and I talk about those on air and we talk about them off air. And some are right and some are absolute nonsense. But the fact of the matter is, you put the ideas out there, it gives you an opportunity to trade them. And I have a theory that actually the market looked at the communication from the Federal Reserve on the session uh, around um, uh, Jay Powell's announcement and what else was going on. I said, yeah, OK, we get that. That's fine. You would, thank you now for handling inflation and getting serious about it. But the fact of the matter is, and here is where the theory comes, you cannot change what it means for corporates, this tightening environment. You cannot change the fact that medium to longer term, People are worried about recession, despite Janet Yellen saying she does not see indicators of it. In the short term, they're worried about inflation. In the short term, they're worried about rates. They're worried about cost pressures. They're worried about uh, refinancing on the corporate bond market. They're worried about the wage rounds from their employees. They're also worried about, and not many people have talked about this, yeah? Less money for buybacks because one of the key props of the rally on the way up was that all kinds of S&P companies decided to raise money in the bond market to have buybacks rather than actually having money in the bond market perhaps to invest in other things in the business. Or even, dare I say, it's sacrilege. And you'll have to look at Lyle Weinstock and what he did at the old GEC here back in the 80s. Hang on to a bit of cash on the balance sheet. Goodness me, not efficient capital management. That's what Jeff was told. That's what I was told. When were we told that? 2006, 2006, and actually a little bit of cash on the balance sheet now wouldn't have been so bad. So what I'm saying is, yes, the communication from the Fed was right, but my goodness me, thereafter, when, when you have a cold shower afterwards or put the water on your face, there is nothing good for equities at the moment in term, apart from maybe some valuations getting more interesting. I don't disagree, and I think it's a very valid point to raise at this point. I just wonder how many people still active 
uh, in the market today can remember that far back. What, 2006 or Lord Weinstock? Well, both, to be <laughs> honest with you. Lord Weinstock, I would imagine, a whole lot more difficult to find people still active in the market yeah. who remember those days. Oh, my goodness me. So do you know who Lord Weinstock was? I'll tell you briefly, and Jeff and I know this story very, very well. He's a man who, one of those great titans of industry in the 80s and 90s, and he built up a company called GEC. And then somebody, Jeff, at some later stage, decided to split it up and turn one part of it into a, a company called Marconi, who, and by the way, this is another metaphor for you, ladies and gentlemen. When you look at these share prices of companies you're worried about, Marconi shares were sky high before the dot-com bubble burst. Jeff, I can't remember what the last print on Marconi was. <laughs> well, look, um, I think it's... I.e., they can go to zero, is well, what we're saying. And, and, and it comes to that point, doesn't it? Nobody has a God-given right to exist at this point, and we're already uh, starting to see the market take on areas that are vulnerable at this stage. And we'll, we'll obviously talk a yeah. bit more about crypto as we go through the yeah. morning, but that's not the only area. No, it's not. And I, and I was shocked by a story today that I read in the Financial Times. And I hadn't seen this one. And, and I'll tell you about it a little bit later on, but I'll just tease it. A well-known bank, in terms of its corporate bond issuance, what do you think it's being, a very well-known, big name, big European name, what do you think it's being asked to pay on its interest rate? You won't believe it. I'll leave that one dangling. Right, here we go. This is what we did in the session. The, the week to date is, is damning as well, so I better move through this quickly. We've got guests waiting galore. We've got Will Kaluris waiting, whatever. Look at these moves for the week. Some of the worst declines for the week that we've seen uh, in a long time. So it's only so far. We could have a, a blockbuster Friday, but I don't know if the conditionality is necessarily there for that. 6.1% down on Nasdaq. As Jeff says, we, people are investigating the business model. 6% down from this, uh, the S&P. And as Jeff said earlier in the week as well, it's about seven stocks leading to the bulk of those decline and they're the big stocks and we asked the question weeks ago what happens if those massive titans the ones who actually will still be here when the dust settles as well what happens if they start to fall if the earnings support's not there for them if actually the valuation support isn't there for them well now we're getting to see uh, even the Dow falling 4.7% as well let's have a look at the treasuries and what we didn't see yesterday was the treasuries exploding in fact quite the opposite now, that's not true. We did see the treasuries explode. We didn't see the yields exploding. There you go. Because despite the fact that the SMB, the Bank of England, the ECB and, of course, the Fed are all talking more hawkishly, albeit with anti-fragmentation tools in place in some cases, the fact of the matter is people find safety in these markets. 3.2% higher uh, is, where, sorry, is where the treasury yields are changed. So it's abated from its highs. Now, the dollar crosses was once again fascinating. There isn't a dull area of this market. As students, and I will be the eternal student of these markets, I'll never be the master, but I'm a student. I'm fascinated by every single one of these moves. And look at this. Even the yen is rallying versus the greenback. I mean, it was 134 a handle. It's not a great rally, but isn't that amazing, the fact that the yen can rally when the BOJ is steadfastly doing zip at the moment as well. The euro rallying against the dollar, sterling rallying against the dollar, because there is an appreciation out there the fact that A, the dollar's come a long way and was seen at one point as the only currency with a central bank doing the heavy lifting on inflation fighting. Well, now other central banks seem to be getting the message, even the ECB, even the Bank of England, not quite yet the BOJ. Let's have a look at some of these commodities as well. Gold has not been a port in the storm, maybe a relative port in the storm, but it hasn't actually given you uh, positive returns. Remember what was it Andy Bruff from Schroders once told us? I, I can't eat relative valuation. I love that phrase. I can't eat relative, I can't eat relative performance, i.e. the fact is, even if you go down 10%, everyone else is going down 20%, you still don't get money at the end of it, do you? 
down 0.6 of a percent there. WTI and Brent are, again, I, I've talked to you about this in 2014. I'll talk to you about it now. It's not often the first shoe to drop uh, in the commodity markets. It took a long while after 2011 for the oil price down to 2014 to drop on the back of economic fears as well. When it does, it moves precipitously. But at the moment, it's those supply side concerns which are still there, exacerbated by, of course, as in one of our headlines, the fact that we have a horrendous war on European soil. Now, look, that's a few of the markets, but you need to know about what's going on live now here. And that's the Asian markets. And Will Caloris, I don't even know where he's going to be. I've got a feeling now. He's over my left shoulder. So I'm going to turn around and there will be Will Caloris in Singapore. <laughs> I, I know he's there because I'm looking at the screen now. Morning, Will. How are you, sir? I'm very well, Steve. Love that intro. <laughs> good, good. You can talk about the markets now. Oh, I could talk about the markets, but what I'm going to talk about, Steve, for you, just especially because you talked about it so eloquently just previously, is what we did see coming out of Japan, because the BOJ doing absolutely nothing yet again, despite all of the jawboning that we have been hearing from them of late, particularly as it relates to the end. So the Nikkei got a little bit of a bid on the back of the BOJ decision not to move and to get incredibly ultra easy over and above what they had been doing. So right now it's off by around about 1.5%. It was topping out at around about 2.2% to the downside earlier. This is where we have seen the action before this BOJ decision and even before yesterday. When, they, when the Dexy got absolutely pummeled, we did see the yen catching a bid. We also saw some of those shorts coming out. And what we did see in particular was on that 10-year paper for Japan, it actually printed well above that 25 basis point upper limit for the 10-year yield curve control. It was actually printing at 45 pips before that. But now, when you look at the 10-year, you see it only printing at 226. And that is because not only... Did the BOJ tell the markets that they're not moving on minus 0.1% in terms of the rate? Not only did they say that they are maintaining that yield curve control, but around about 30 minutes after that decision came through, they also said that they are going to be going unlimited to defend the yield curve control. And that is because there has been a raft of money trying to come in thick and fast and attack the BOJ when it does come to the yield curve control. And for all the talk that we have been hearing from the BOJ, for all the talk that we have been hearing from the MOF and the FSA, that joint communique that they did issue last week on Friday, suggesting that they were concerned about the weekend. All of the jawboning, all of the commentary we hear day in and day out coming from the finance minister, Suzuki-san, plus the other participants. What you have seen from the BOJ today is a steadfast, steadfast policy to maintain that ultra easy monetary policy. Yes, they did say that the inflation has ticked up a little bit in terms of their expectations. And they also added the language that they are gonna keep a close eye on the end. But realistically, for all intents and purposes, we've seen nothing new from the BOJ and that leaves the door open yet again for the shorts to plow into the yen. And perhaps, perhaps intervention on the cards if it does get a little bit too hot, if the G7 lets them. Will, terrific. Thank you very much indeed for that roundup of uh, what's important coming out of the Asian session here. So I've got a wall here with possibly, I mean, you can argue the toss on this one, but possibly the five most important people on the planet at the moment. And um, the reason why, you'll all understand, um, this is not just a story about uh, pointy-headed financial markets. This is a story about how everybody is going to have to pay to borrow going forward, whether they can afford it or not. And these are the rates that are being set by these people and by the teams that they work with. So as you know, it's been quite a remarkable week in the world of central banking. The Fed 
kicking things off, hiking rates 75 basis points and suggesting it could do the same in July. Then, of course, uh, we had the Bank of England lifting rates for the fifth time in a row, now standing at one and a quarter of 1% here. So that's the Fed, that's the Bank of England. Where do we go next? Well, the SNB also lifted its rates for the first time in 15 years, but stayed in negative territory and said more could be needed. And obviously we heard from Thomas Jordan as to why they think it's important now to challenge some of the inflationary pressure and keep pace with others in the central banking universe. Meanwhile, the ECB called an emergency meeting amid spiralling bond yields. Oh, sorry, did I say emergency? I must have meant ad hoc. At least it was a surprise inter-meeting meeting that seemed like an emergency meeting as the ECB tried to address the risk of fragmentation. So spiralling bond yields causing concern and in particular the spread widening between the risk-free German 10-year Bund and the Italian 10-year BTP which not everybody in the market seems to think is risk-free at the moment. So further indication that Christine Lagarde will raise uh, interest rates next month. Let's move you on to uh, Mr. Kuroda. Uh, the J, uh, the uh, Bank of Japan uh, focusing on JGB uh, purchases, the bank holding firm on its very large stimulus plan and saying it will keep borrowing costs at current levels or below as it nurses the economy post-pandemic. Now, the interesting thing to me is that not a lot of people are talking about coordination in central banking land. Not a a lot of people are dusting off the old uh, post-GFC playbook and saying, I think they might be contacting each other and talking about their intentions. And I think maybe one of the biggest clues was the fact that the ECB held that emerge I mean ad hoc meeting where they felt it necessary to talk about measures to try to cap yields that coming immediately after we saw this massive spike in speculation around 75 basis points so the central banking community of the world it seems to me are working fist in glove right now to try to manage market expectations and prevent some kind of disorderly or uncontrolled liquidation of different asset classes. So let's go back to what they've been telling us. The Swiss franc surging on the SNB's hike. Juliana spoke with the chairman, Thomas Jordan, and asked him for the rationale behind the move. In Switzerland, we have now an increased inflationary pressure. If you look at our inflation forecast, it shows that uh, it will come down below 2%, eventually go above a 2% again, especially without uh, any uh, right take. So we came to the conclusion that it's the right time now to tighten monetary policy in order to make sure that uh, over the medium term inflation then returns to uh, the zone of price stability. Well, US President Joe Biden says a recession is, quote, not inevitable, but the, uh, that the American people are feeling, quote, really down after more than two years of pandemic and economic uncertainties. In an interview with the Associated Press, Biden said the US economy is in a stronger position to overcome inflationary pressures compared to other countries. The president added that he is confident about recovery prospects given the overall strength of the US labor market.
Let's dig into this a little deeper. Uh, Daniela Antonucci is uh, chief economist and uh, macro strategist at uh, uh, Quintet uh, Private Bank. Good morning to you and thank you for joining us. Um, I've suggested that maybe there is some coordination going on here as the central bankers recognize that they need to very quickly address these inflationary pressures. What do you think and what do you think that tells us about likely terminal rates now for interest rates uh, in the global economy? Good morning and thanks for having me on the show. I think the best way to look at this is to think about what is it that central banks are trying to achieve. So to me, rather than speaking about coordination per se, central banks are recognizing that there's a global inflation problem. Some of them have lagged the response, but now they're trying to recover the lost ground. And so they are acting, with a few exceptions, you mentioned Japan, but they are now acting simultaneously in the hope that they will be able to rein in inflation. I think actually that's the positive aspect. If they are eventually successful, that means more tightening now, but perhaps less tightening later. A scenario where they don't act, even at the risk of slowing the pace of economic growth, we have moved past the peak, clearly. If they don't act, then they will need to tighten a lot more later, and the probability of recession in that scenario would increase faster. When it comes to the terminal rate, look, we are seeing um, a fast pace of interest rate hikes projected in the US especially, less so in other parts of the world, but they're beginning to move as well. I suspect though that interest rates will peak at a lower level than in past cycles. There's several reasons for that. One is that potential growth has slowed compared to past cycles, in fact. Another reason is that private sector debts, even though the the debt service costs are low, private sector debts, public sector debts are quite high. And generally speaking, I think even though this trade-off between slowing inflation and supporting growth is becoming more difficult, I suspect the central banks after the next few hikes, once they are above neutral rates, once they are in a restrictive territory, will begin to, to look more um, with more concern on economic growth and perhaps slow the pace of tightening. The behaviour of the central banks has been characterised by um, a misinterpretation of what's been going on in the global economy, it seems to me. We, we, we had the Fed insisting this was transitory inflation for a very long time. We had the ECB insisting that inflation is different in Europe and it doesn't need to be addressed in the same way as the Fed has been addressing its inflationary problem or the UK has been addressing its inflationary problem. The last week has been characterised by rapid U-turns in those strategies. Why should we think that the central banks have got it right this time and that actually they are reacting too fast, too aggressively to inflation that may already have passed its peak? Right. I think uh, central banks, like investors, by the way, obviously have to make decisions in real time. So one could see why in the initial stages of the inflation spike, when there were a lot of COVID concerns, 
when the economy was really weak, labor markets, they, they hadn't healed as much as they, they did now, one could see why central banks lacked the response. There was the pandemic uncertainty. Then I think they saw that regardless of the nature of the inflation spike, it may as well be triggered by these supply strains, but it started to fit through, to fit through into expectations at the consumer level, at the firm level. This could have been one of the reasons why the Fed hiked 75 basis points, by the way, the other day. They must have seen the latest data on inflation, strong print, broad-based fit through, then we got the survey, the, the University of Michigan survey on consumer expectations, suggesting that expectations on inflation had picked up even more. And so they acted more aggressively. But to your point, I think it's fair to say that it, it's hard to calibrate the policy response. It's a very blunt tool. Interest rates, monetary tightening can control demand. But if the source of this inflation in part is the supply disruptions, there is the risk that they over tighten just when inflation may begin to peak at a high level and start to come down. Daniele, people have ignored debt burdens and actually piled them up glibly at low interest rates for years and have ignored those of us who have had great concerns about piling up debt loads. For instance, corporate non-financial companies have raised $14 trillion in new debt since 2019. Total non-financial corporate debt globally is now over 90 trillion US dollars. And we're talking catastrophically large numbers which need refinancing going forward. This is going to be like whack-a-mole, whether it's corporates, whether it's individuals, whether it's sovereigns. There is a real refinancing problem out there, whether people want to admit it or not, isn't there? There's two sides. But certainly, by the way, that's one of the reasons why financial stability concern at some point will feature more prominently in central bank decisions. Maybe not now, because if you think about it, even though the tightening has been fast, the level of interest rates remain rather low. We are below neutral, as we said. But generally speaking, I think that's a, a very valid observation. So there's a lot of debt in the marketplace. The housing market could be in some countries, maybe not globally, but in some countries, another area of vulnerability. And on the flip side, debt service costs are, are low. But if the market or, or, or are beginning to, to show concerns about that, I think central banks will probably eventually be sensitive to that. The main example is the ECB. There was a staring contest between markets and policymakers. Just a, just, just a hint and the signal that they will begin to raise rates from negative levels trigger such a widening in sovereign spreads, and then they had to do this ad hoc meeting on a potential tool to mitigate fragmentation. But the underlying problem is there. It's high debt and low growth. Daniele, a pleasure speaking to you. Uh, Jeff and I would both like to chat to you again soon, if we may. So thank you very much indeed for joining us today. Have a lovely weekend. Daniele Antonucci, who is the Chief Economist and Macro Strategist at Quintet Private Bank. European leaders, including the President of Romania, have travelled to Kiev uh, to take steps to welcome Ukraine into the European family. Uh, well, when though? That's the question. We'll have some more after the break.
Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. Uh, some top leaders from across Europe, Germany, France, Italy uh, and Romania, uh, visited Kiev in a united show of support for Ukraine. The German Chancellor, the French President, the Italian Prime Minister and the Romanian President toured the ruined city of Irpin and held talks with President Zelensky, after which they said the country should be granted EU candidate status moving Kiev one step closer to the economic bloc. Now, Mr. Scholz, or Herr Scholz, said he would push for EU members to approve Ukraine's bid for membership, but that's important, bid for membership, not membership. Ukraine belongs to the European family. A milestone on its precondition-rich path is the status of an accession candidate. The EU member states will be discussing this in the next few days. We know it needs unanimity among the 27 EU states. At the European Council, I will push for a unified position. Germany is in favour of a positive decision, in favour of Ukraine. This also applies to the Republic of Moldova. Well, Sylvia joins us from Luxembourg ahead of today's meeting of European Finance Minister. Sylvia, I'm going to share an anecdote with you and the viewers. Um, I spoke to Vitaly Klitschko uh, when the Russians invaded Crimea. I was in Kiev at that time, literally when the Russians uh, entered part of the sovereign territory. And I said, why do you want to be a politician? You're a very successful, very rich man. He goes, because my country is the most corrupt on the planet. He said, I don't want it to be seen as the most corrupt on the planet. That is the impression that I want to clean up Kiev and I want to clean up politics and I want to clean up this country as well. And I thought that was very, very important comment at the time. Now, let's spin forward eight years now and let's be brutally honest about this. Kiev is fighting a, a devastating war. There are all kinds of reasons why the Western Alliance is backing it. But the fact of the matter is there are still deep deep problems with the Ukrainian economy that mean potentially it is not at the forefront of those candidate nations who want to join the EU. So in essence, the, the, the membership of the European Union will not come easy for Ukraine, Steve. It is very likely that that will only happen if the country deploys several structural reforms. And indeed, we need to see for what the European Commission will say later this morning. It will issue an opinion on whether Ukraine should join the EU. And in that opinion, it is likely that the Commission will already outline some of the steps that Ukraine needs to take in the coming years to indeed join the EU. It's important to bear in mind as well that the Commission will also issue an opinion on Moldova and Georgia. So it's important to look at other countries in this context of enlargement of the EU, not just Ukraine. But regardless of what the Commission says later today, it's very likely that this will be a long and challenging process. And the difficulty for Ukraine is that this country is still fighting a war. So it's probably even harder for Ukraine to join the EU in the coming years. So let's see how this will develop in the coming uh, years, what the European leaders will say next week. But for the time being, it is too, still too early to assess how this will unfold. 
But for the time being, Steve, I would like to look at some of the economic developments because these are also being impacted by the war in Ukraine. And we had that very important emergency meeting from the European Central Bank earlier this week, essentially the Central Bank saying that it is developing a new tool to address some of the fragmentation risks that uh, uh, markets have been concerned about. And I ask different finance ministers here in Luxembourg how they feel about the recent developments in the financial markets. And I have to say that the Austrian finance minister told me he's very concerned about the recent rise in yields. We are very much concerned about that, that's uh, for sure. Um, I think um, all the, the rules have to, uh, have to be for all the member states uh, all together. No different rules for different member states. So the fragmentation risks are uh, top of your concern? They are, they are very high um, on our concerns, definitely, yes. So what's your message to these countries? Well, um, bring your budgets uh, in order. That's, uh, that's the message, yeah. And uh, I think we're very much all together in Europe, um, very much into getting our budgets um, uh, together and um, um, getting, getting in form, getting in shape, because uh, the ECB has to have um, more possibilities and uh, the ECB can only have possibilities if all the budgets in all the member states uh, are in shape. So the comment from the Austrian finance minister there saying that he's very concerned about higher government yields contrasts with what the German finance minister told me here yesterday. Mr. Lindner said that the eurozone is stable and that there's no need for the markets to be concerned. The eurozone it is stable. The uh, monetary union uh, has a robust uh, character. Uh, we have institutions and um, we are considering measures to uh, fight uh, inflation, fostering uh, growth and to uh, safeguard the um, economic, the macroeconomic uh, stability. Yes, of course, we are witnessing some uh, rising uh, spreads uh, amongst the member states, but this is uh, no, um, 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 there's no need for, for any uh, concern. In the uh, long-term uh, perspective, if you uh, compare interest rates and uh, spreads of today with interest rates and uh, spreads some months or years um, ago, um, there is uh, no need for anyone to uh, get nervous. Now, where Germany and Austria are aligned is on the fact that Eurozone countries need to work towards better public finances. And the German finance minister said that this is also an exercise that his own country needs to do in the coming months. But for the time being, there's no appetite among the Eurozone countries to really address higher public debts because essentially those fiscal rules that apply to Eurozone countries have been suspended in the wake of the pandemic, and they have not been reinstated yet. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.